This is the Last Mohican Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Tonight I'm joined by my good friend Justin Truskowski. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Justin and I met as pretty young kids. I was uh, 10 or 11 when we met. Just a little bit of backstory there. And... Let's get into it. Justin, I want to share a little bit of uh, world news with you. In case you don't know where all of our recycling goes. So where do you think our recycling goes? The United States as a whole. To a big warehouse somewhere. It's kind of hard to say. I mean, I would, I would assume something like that too. We're pretty much going to be faced with like a Wally scenario pretty soon because... In actuality, one-third of the United States recycling gets sent out of the country, and half of that one-third goes to China specifically. As of September of last year, China has requested that we no longer send our recycling there, and they put a ban on it effective January 1st, so the first day of this month. China no longer accepts our recycling, and um, as a result of that, People haven't stopped recycling here, but it's all going to landfills, things that will never, pretty much never decompose are getting built up in these landfills. So we don't have broad scale knowledge of that yet in the U.S., but we're continuing to recycle at the same rates and same volumes that we've been. So we are reaching crisis level and the point where we're going to have to invent some trash sorting robots pretty soon what do you think of that it's always all you hear is recycle recycle you know and instead of going backwards and trying to find the solution it's always trying to find like another thing that makes recycling work what's funny is there's like a three a three-part attitude that we're supposed to have, reduce, reuse, recycle. People are just recycling. No one's reducing the amount of things that they use and no one is reusing these recyclable materials saying, okay, this is a plastic cup. I can use it again after this. and I could use it all day tomorrow, but I'll just throw it in the recycling can and then I'll feel good about it. I'll feel righteous about it because I recycled it. Things like the trash bags, the grocery bags. I call them trash bags. They're just the shopping bags that we get at the store. Plastic that most people, you know, just see as a thing. Like uh, a piece of trash, really. A lot of people um, go for those recyclable bags. Like the handy tote bags that are snazzy now. Who wants to pay for that to go grocery shopping? We use them as trash bags here. That's at least getting a second use out of them. That's... It's better than buying... Yeah, it's the least we can do. Buying bags to throw away, you know. I wanted to share that little bit of news with you and the listeners just to um, shed some light on it, raise a little bit of awareness about it. Justin and I's history, like I said, goes back to me being about 10 years old, maybe even 9 years old. We rode the same bus from a small housing development that was pretty much an hour bus ride from our school. And 
we started going to different schools. I started off in Catholic school. Justin just went to public school. And there was only one bus because it was a pretty remote location. So I think you're two or three years older than me. But we, myself and the younger kids that went to this Catholic school all rode the same bus as the high school kids because there was only one. I got to see some pretty interesting interactions socially between you and other other people riding the bus. I'm sure you can remember there was uh we could call it my intro to sociological research. Pretty much just learning how other people reacted to you and weird questions from you. We could say, you know, we kind of laughed at other people or laughed with other people, but we were really just finding entertainment in humor in others in ways that I didn't see anybody else doing. Where do you think that started for you? Do you think you were doing that your whole life? Going through school is, going to school was, you know, in the morning and boring. And so you had to find some way to be entertained. Whether it be poking fun or having fun, you know. You really, I think, developed major interest in curiosity in others, though. Because I can remember you carrying around a video camera. At the time when even, like, jackass wasn't that much of a thing. But, you know, maybe right on the verge of becoming popular and that was one of the first ways people got to see strangers res responding to weird situations you were talking to strangers with a video camera taking trips right you took a trip to dc back in the day do you remember how old you were when you did that i think it was in 10th or 11th grade you did the same thing when you took a trip to florida i think locally you would go around with this video camera and just see weird interactions i think one of the first like quote unquote fight videos I ever saw was a video on your video camera. So that was a weird thing. And back then we didn't realize how interesting it was. That was sociological research. You were learning about others and it was very entertaining to you whether it was, you know, a positive interaction, a negative interaction, and you were learning about people. You developed an interest in people that way, I'm sure. And that piqued my interest in people probably more than anything else because my dad was a businessman. My mom wasn't social in the way you were. So that piqued a lot of interest in others for me. Were your parents like that? Your dad interacts with people in interesting ways too. Like he'll, he'll crack a joke that might not come across as a joke to the person or, <laughs> or ask them a funny question or give them a nickname without even knowing them, you know? And uh, maybe, it, maybe it came from your dad a little bit, but I wasn't seeing that anywhere else in the world around me back then. That was a very interesting thing. I do remember wielding that video camera around and taking videos, and that fight was really interesting because... It was cool. The next couple days in school, like, I got called to the office. Oh. And they were like, 
we know you have the video. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yeah, I don't have it right now. <laughs> they were like, well, you better bring it tomorrow or you're going to get in some kind of trouble, you know. So I took, I, I actually had it with me, <laughs> but I lied because I, I went home and I edited it. I put like some metal some music, music <laughs> to it. So that's awesome. They had to watch that in the courtroom, I guess. That's cool. That was one of the original fight videos. You were way ahead of Kimbo Slice, probably. You were you were probably contemporary with like the original Faces of Death videos, which are like, I mean, we're we're talking about it like in a novel way, but we were at the beginning of like internet entertainment, video entertainment, like that. Uh, maybe you don't even realize now you were like on the verge of something then that really not many other people were doing there was like the CKY videos and the jackass videos really you didn't get to see anything other than that elsewhere so those were my beginnings in sociological research as I like to call it but around that same time I also had my beginnings in music and I don't know if you recall but it started with a lie do you remember anything about that? If you do, I'd rather you share what you remember first and then I will uh I'll share with the people my perspective on it. I feel like I needed a drummer or something way back. You did. And you were like, I can bang on those drums. I was like, Oh cool. I was uh I was probably ten or eleven years old and Justin, you might have been I mean, you're two or three years older than me. Can't quite remember, but around that time, we rode the bus together. There was music playing on the radio on the bus, and there happened to be a song that played called No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age. So if the listeners don't know, um, the drummer in Queens of the Stone Age is Dave Grohl, who was the drummer from... Nirvana and the frontman of the Foo Fighters. So he's a good drummer. The song No One Knows has like really punchy, really dynamic, fast drumming, and there's like a section in it with a lot of these crazy drum rolls and fills. So you guys, you and I don't know if Frank Tarico was on the bus at that time. No? You and someone else were talking about how you wanted a drummer for your band, and I was eavesdropping. And just said, hey, I can play drums. I'll play drums in your band. I can play this song that's playing right now. And you're like, wow, really? You might as well, you might as well come around then. You know, we exchanged information somehow. We, we planned for it to happen. And I showed up to your house and had never seen a drum set before in person. So that was an evident lie. Got behind the drums and pretended to know how to play. And because you lacked a drummer, it was acceptable for a little while. So we went along with that. We went along with that for a little while. I was the quote unquote drummer in this band until we came across Kenny Tompkins, who actually knew how to play drums and was a learned drumming you know, student. And so he came around the first time and actually played the drums, completely embarrassed me, and he became the new drummer. And so you and Frank and Kenny were like, 
hey Stevie, why don't you why don't you be the singer? And that was the way it went. That was my intro to music there. But I had never seen musical instruments before, so that was that was all a really incredible step and experience for me. I got to play guitars for the first time, basses for the first time, drums. I learned from Kenny. I tried not to have a chip on my shoulder about being replaced as the drummer. I learned from him. I got my own drum set maybe a year or two later for Christmas and uh, started my own kind of musical journey from there. I borrowed a guitar from Frank at times. You taught me how to play power chords and uh, learned how to play, you know, some cool guitar licks. And that was how I got started in music. I took that and ran with it, but it started with that lie. Like, oh, I could play that Queens of the Stone Age song. You were a guitar student. You were you were getting a few lessons, I think, from was it Fox? Yeah, so you could you could actually play. When did you start playing guitar? At what at what age you think? Well before that? Maybe like eight. Around eight years old. You have a musical uncle, right? Yeah. Was he kind of the guy who Gave you that push? Yeah, he gave me a guitar to play. A nicer one. I only had like a toy acoustic at the time. And... Just went from there. But then, uh... Going through all those lessons and then... Down the road trying to give the lessons myself. Mm-hmm. I realized that I was just a child. And that I needed to relearn a lot of things. Absolutely. And I was taught things wrong. Which was pretty overwhelming. But necessary. Right? I started reading Victor Wooten's book. It's called The Music Lesson. It's over there. Very, very cool. It's basically about him unlearning and relearning through music. With this very strange music kind of teacher that he had. So an important thing that he learned from this teacher was that music needs to be treated like a language. And when you're learning how to speak, you don't dedicate time to practice. You don't you don't practice specific words. You don't practice specific phrases or sentences. You don't dedicate an hour your hour of your day to practicing speaking. It just is something that you develop as an ongoing skill through your life. You continue practicing it. You continue kind of sharpening your edge and you don't let your linguistic skills collect dust. Music needs to be treated that same way. And one of the most beneficial things that he had a breakthrough in with learning about music is the importance of jamming because if you sit and play by yourself and you play pretty much like similar sequence of things like if you sit down and say I'm going to play these scales I'm going to play these songs and that's how I'm going to get better you may get better at the motor skills you may get better at the fretting or the fingering, or the strumming, or plucking, or what have you, the techniques. 
but you won't get better as a musician. You won't. You'll get better at the techniques. You need to jam with others, especially people that are better than you, and learn how to make music. Because a musician's goal is to make music, not to play notes, not to play specific techniques, not to strum, not to pluck, not to do scales. Your goal is to make music, so you need to jam and make music, make sounds, experiment, try, fail, maybe, learn that way. So that was really powerful to come across in the book. And it's a short read, but really powerful already. I haven't even finished it. The Music Lesson by Victor Wooten. Very cool. And uh, we, you and I both, and plenty others in the music world, consider him the pinnacle of skill and virtuosity as a musician, right? Correct. He considers him a child, like what he considers himself a child, like what you said. Like we think for him to get to that level, he must sit down and just practice those techniques constantly, those down up thumb techniques and those finger those crazy finger picking and the wild fretting and techniques he does. It comes from jamming. It doesn't come from sitting and practicing like that. I'm sure you have to practice technique and I'm sure he does and still does. But there's more to it than that. Yeah, you won't be able to have as much fun if you're just sticking to a... Regiment. Yeah. And what happens if you're not having fun doing something? What do you do? You stop doing it. Yeah. It's not going to last. That's the key to being... You have to be playing it every day and loving it. It has to be fun for you to do it. Jamming is fun. Quote unquote practicing is not fun. It can be. It can be. It can be. So, back to the sociological research for a minute because I just remembered one more thing that was really interesting that you did when we were younger that only looking back on it now do I realize how interesting it was. Maybe you don't even realize. I think you could probably, I'm talking about you personally, you could probably count how many times that you've drank booze on one hand or definitely on two hands you really do not drink booze right yeah you you do not you just do not then yeah even as a even as a younger person like when we all try it and like have these bad nights where we like get sick and throw up and drink too much and stuff like that you never had that but you always had a bottle of liquor around do you remember that? I remember you having a bottle of Absolute or like a bottle of this or that type of liquor. And it was, I don't know if you even, maybe it was a subconscious thing. It was like an experiment because I think you kind of wanted to see what people would do with it. And there were times when I would drink it and I would have those negative experiences that we previously mentioned, but... I never saw you get like that. I think that's I think that's interesting, peculiar but interesting. I definitely had a influence of a friend that made me get to where I was like that. I was like puking out the window and just sleeping in the car, not having any fun, you know, because I was too, mm-hmm. too gone. 
And only a couple times did I need to experience that to really just say no more of that. I think that's a mark of intelligence because a lot of Americans, a lot of people around the world continue going through that process throughout their life. We continue to pretty much damage ourselves and disappoint ourselves, but we let it continue because drinking is something we continue to view as a potential outlet or way to have fun, a method. We consider it a method when we can tell through our experiences that it's an ineffective method. It's a great escape to life in general to have a break from being alive, you know. And what is it that you learned that you don't want to escape life? There's other ways to escape life that are much less harmful to your... I really love life and I feel like I don't necessarily need an escape from time to time, but I need some kind of therapeutic release. And I, from the very beginning, saw alcohol as a way to cope with a buildup of negativity or a way to, you know, forget, forget reality, like what we said, but people continue to use it for things that it doesn't work for, like making themselves happy or trying to fit in. Yeah. Fitting in like trying to be cool. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really work for that. Can keep trying though. That's what we do. So, when you got out of high school, what were the strong inclinations that you had as an individual? What what were the driving forces for you? You were pushed. You were pushed in a direction, I think, from something inside. But I want to know what. Curiosity? My last day of high school, I had a car. It's like 87 Dodge Charger, four-cylinder, when they built cars to try to save gas. And I got pulled over because there was this, this lady in the passenger seat who had weed on her and was paranoid and telling me where to go. So I decided to just listen to her and go up a one way and get pulled over. He let me go, but I ended up going to uh, Luzerne County Community College. They had an architecture program there. And in high school, I had three years of AutoCAD drafting. It was great. I mean, I'd have to say that I just recently was going through all the things that I went through in college and did in college and I was like I think I was better in high school which is kind of weird to say you have a lot of aptitude and skills in that area and I don't know if it's just something that you unlocked early in your brain like how you said you started it in high school but people do years of architecture schooling our mutual friend Silas is in 
a long, grueling program now as a 23-year-old in the city, still striving for what you pretty much reached right after high school? Yeah, I think it was my first year of college. I ended up getting a job with an architect named Lynn Kesselman. And you had an excellent gig, right? It was great, and I was I was learning everything with the architect getting paid, and then I would go to school, and I would I would know what the teacher was trying to teach, and I would he would be trying to teach it his way, and then I would try I would be doing it Lynn Kesselman's way, and he would not really appreciate that, because mm. I think uh, they had like a run in before those two. Oh yeah, and small town. Yeah, so he didn't really, he didn't like Lynn Kesselman, you know, because he was more of a, I don't know, he's not, really, not a really nice guy, yeah. you know. Which which we see sometimes. There's, there's, just, there's just guys out there, people out there, who will be in a position that doesn't really suit them. Like, if you're an educator, your mind should be geared towards service for others you know but a lot of people that are educators it seems like they'd be better suited as some kind of authoritarian or like police officer something like that they they want things done their way as opposed to the end goal being an educated student so what was the uh what was the breaking point there or a thing that you arrived at that made you change gears that you decided to go from this awesome gig with Kesselman and being a student to the life you chose which I would call the like the traveler life for those first few years after high school I got to meet in a lot of architects and I realized they all had, like, one thing in common that was sort of not the kind of guy I wanted to be. Do you, do you, are you able to put a finger on what that common factor was? Was it just that they're like, oh, it pays well? Yeah, it pays well. I realized you had to sort of be, like, to be your own architect, you kind of have to be part lawyer. And... The way that they all were with their families was not like me very much. I'm maybe I'm just using that as an excuse, but well, there was something internal that shifted your drive and your focus because you, in turn, committed everything to learning about culture elsewhere in the world. You know what I mean? You chose to. Remove yourself from the life you knew and go learn about other ways of life. I had this friend, his name was Mark, and he, he told me to go to the, there was like a, a gathering of tribes in the Pennsylvania area. And ever since I went to that, I decided to really, I don't know, it really changed my perspective a lot. I never even knew what sociology was before, like, even though I was interested in it. Something about the, the people that I met there and just 
you got onto a path of self-education too. Every time we did get to meet up from the time after high school, you had new lessons to share and usually a new book, something really profound and influential that you were uncovering pretty much every time I encountered you from that time. One of the big ones was Gene Keys, the book Gene Keys. Can't think of the author right now. I bought it once you started to share a little bit about it with me. How did you come across that? When I was in, I went to this this gathering in Washington State, and I ended up meeting these two ladies, and they like took me to their house, and they were really into that book, and I was like, you know, what is this? It's basically the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching, and the the guy who wrote the book, Richard Rudd, he just sort of explains them in his own words. Like, and it's basically every, there's 64 different things that is what people, it's like sociology and all these different things combined, like with like how humans act and it. He unlocked, I don't know if it was him personally, right? Because I, I, I still haven't read it. I got I to gotta do the audiobook, so I'll actually commit to it. But someone unlocked the link between these, these profiles of sociological traits. Well, sociological profiles based on the genetic makeup a person can have. Does it, it gets down to like a chromosome level where your DNA won't just determine physical or anatomical or health traits about you. It can also determine personality-related profile stuff. And that's wild. The fact that your heredity or your traits don't just determine your physical being, but they can also dictate some of your psychological and mental being. That's really outrageous. Something about the astrology is connected with it, like what time of year you're born and what year that is. So it can factor so many variables of existence that don't necessarily even get recognized as real determining factors in a person's health or psychological state. Things that are overlooked by Western medicine completely could be real determining factors. Like astrology is seen as pretty much a fake science or, uh, you know, a superstition in Western culture in this day and age. But Richard Rudd included that in these, these profiles. Astrology. Yeah, you can go on the website and put in your birthday and get your what's called a hologenetic profile. And then it'll tell you the gene keys that are most pertain to you. 
but really they all are. And really they're all the same in a way, but they're all slightly different. Like people. So you have to check out Dr. Rhonda Patrick, this nutritionist that I've been listening to podcasts with uh, Joe Rogan. Um, the two of them covering a lot of a lot of wild health related topics based on nutrition, based on fitness. And um, she's getting into epigenetics now that she's a parent and has uncovered a lot about it. There are genes that can either be made active or passive in your DNA and then either manifest themselves or go overlooked in your children based on whether or not you activate them through your health. So obesity in any individual, just for one example, is linked to a whole slew of health traits in on an epigenetic level and can activate these traits and then be passed on. So there's there's a number of there's a number of things that can come from any one thing in your DNA and travel to your child that we that we don't see yet but are now completely quantified through this new genetic research. She's as you're a parent now, it would be awesome to check out some of her research, which is extensive, and learn learn some things you won't learn elsewhere. You and Kate are definitely a step or two ahead of the average parent our age in understanding your role as a parent and understanding your child's health objectively, but there's there's always more to learn. And listening to Dr. Rhonda Patrick proves that for sure because... Every time I hear it, it's something new. The amount of nutrition in human breast milk, for instance, there's, um, it's wild. There's human growth hormone in breast milk. There are um, cultures, bacteria that are not found anywhere else and they are responsible for Forming the gastrointestinal system, the gut biome for your child while they're still uh, nursing. So if you choose not to breastfeed or you choose to breastfeed but you don't have your own nutrition in mind, you could be depriving your child of a diverse and healthy gut biome. That's wild. Yeah, even just bottle feeding, like pumping and bottle feeding is, you only get like 20% or something of the good stuff. Is anything, it's, it's lost just by not coming direct? Yeah, because it comes out all, it's just like, pick, it's just like picking the plant, you know. It's not live. Like the fruit off the plant, you know, and it's, eating it, it right away. It's or? not completely live at a certain point anymore. Nope. I told you about sulforaphane. 
the nutrient sulforaphane. That's also something I learned from uh, listening to a Dr. Rhonda Patrick podcast. It's a super powerful anti-inflammatory. Sulforaphane is found in uh, parciferous vegetables, like the really strong smelling greens. And um, it can substantially reduce inflammation in the body. It can replace anti-depression medication. It can improve children's uh, autism scores. It can, you know, change their score on the spectrum, basically reduce their levels of autism. It can reduce and alleviate the symptoms of Alzheimer's. This nutrient that's found in vegetables. Why don't people know that? That's really wild as well. So that's that's a good reason to check out Dr. Rhonda Patrick. So something I remember from a conversation with you during your travels. You actually um, you visited me when I was stationed in San Diego. Very cool. That was that was a really cool time. We talked then about how. Throughout your travels, you start to notice patterns in like metropolitan layouts, in people, in things in general. You notice patterns throughout the world because how much of the world is really 100% unique? Probably not so much. There's, there's patterns. There's common traits through everything. And that helped you. You said it started to help you navigate. Yeah, every time I went to a new city, I would, I would be able to find all the things that I wanted to because they were basically all the same. They were laid out the same. Unless the landscape was like real hilly or if it was like a flat city, it would always usually be laid out sort of similar. And, and with people, it's... Yeah, the people, I would always see the same people, but like, they wouldn't be the same person, you know, but, but they would just, they would have that same archetype in a way. And it, it would really trip me out. And after a while it got old though, because you'd, you'd meet these people and this, this one place in particular I can point out is I was at like this skate park. And there were these cool kids. Oh, some cool kids were there. And I was like on my bicycle. <laughs> and they were they were like, they thought I was cool and we were hanging out and whatever. But they were like, oh, you're just going to leave. I was like, oh, yeah, eventually. <laughs> so like whenever somebody wants to be a friend, you know, they, they just like, put you off right away because they know that you're just going to leave anyway. If they can't trust that you will be a constant presence in their life, that you think they treat you differently. If they know you're not going to stay, they treat you differently. Yeah. Well, that's a shame. And you traveled a lot of the U S but also, um, part of British Columbia too. Oh yeah. The, I was on the, 
Yeah, British Columbia, and then the Vic- Victoria, that that island. So, what was that really long bicycle trip from up there? It's from traveling south. Where did you Where did you start and where did you stop? It was Missoula, Montana. I started, and then we went up to Nelson, and there was like twenty two of us that started. Where's that Nelson? Nelson. Is that Mant- Montana as well? No, that was in Canada. Okay. Uh, yeah, half of us crossed the border, and then half of us went up through Glacier Park. Amazing. Didn't you didn't have to didn't register across the border, you know? Uh, was that tough going back? No, no, they they want you to come back. So that is that one of the two unregistered border crossings that you had. Is I, is this uh, um, incriminating to talk about? No, okay. I, I didn't. I went through the border. I know you had trouble getting back from Mexico, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I went up to British Columbia, and then I was, like, biking around Victoria for a while. And that place was just... It was too much. So In what I, sense? Well, I remember when I first got there, I was, like, really excited to, like, find my friends again, you know, because I was by myself, and I met some random person, and he gave me, like, half of a pot cookie, and he was, I was like, only half, he was like, yeah, that's all you need, and then I went to the, to the town, and I had, like, this book I was, like, drawing in, and writing all this stuff, and it was just so intense that I got lost, and lost my my book and I was just been there it I've was been there. it was bad but then we ended up going back to the United States on the ferry and direct from Victoria yeah okay and then I ended up biking down through Washington and Oregon on the coast that had to be amazing the Oregon coast is beautiful and then Northern California, it's like its own state, mm-hmm. Humboldt. Yep. Yeah, it is. At the time. Good thing I had a bike, though. Cause... And then I ended up going all the way to Berkeley, California. And I realized why they call it Berserkly. <laughs> but, uh... At what point did you come down with pneumonia? Oh, uh, that was... That was in Oregon. I, uh... Had to go to the hospital. Uh. I ended up like biking and sweating all the way up this hill and like staying up top and watching the sunset and getting cold and then like bombing this hill super cold like on the way down like beyond shivering and then I I camped on top of this swamp like near the ocean and I must have got some water in my lungs because it was such and then it was like a week of like struggle. I had to go to the hospital. It was really weird at the hospital what they did, cause they I like got X-rayed and they knew what it was and and then they like all came in like three or four guys and it was like take these pills. I don't know, but I ended up taking the pills and they told me to go get more and I never did and I got better anyway. 
Then I made my way the rest of the way. Continuing south. So many different towns all the same, you know. <laughs> 20 miles apart, you know. It's a really good revelation to have, I think. The fact that you got to learn that firsthand was significant. Because people who never venture out from what they know can have these misconceptions that life could be so drastically different elsewhere or that they could be so drastically different somewhere else. People who stay isolated in their surroundings and never venture forth into the rest of the world to learn and get some culture, they don't, they don't get to realize that people are people all around the world. There are patterns. There are archetypes and profiles of people and places that are similar everywhere. Even if you go to other countries, there are obvious significant differences, but still people share these traits all around the globe. I'm glad you got to learn that. Yeah, no matter how far you go, it's just going to be, it's not going to be much different. Yeah, even like in Mexico, it was just, Mexico was really nice. I can imagine. A bit warmer. Yeah, once you go like 2,000 miles past the border, it gets really nice. It's like tropical. Food's real delicious and cheap. Uh, Come across any hot springs? No, the, not really. That would have been nice. I did catch some hot springs in Colorado. Very nice. Called a steamboat. Yeah. And then there's like the, the hot springs. Then there's like the cold river right there. You could jump in after you get out of uh, hot springs. That's, that's, that's a great thing. The Native American sweat lodge tradition is to like build up this sweat lodge with moss right next to the river, especially the Colorado River, because it's extremely cold, and just lose it all, sweating, like reach hysteria, hallucinations, like barely hanging on to consciousness in the sweat lodge, and then plunge yourself into the Colorado River. And the shock is supposed to be really healthy and really profound benefit can be derived from that. But take your chances. I mean, that is, there's there's risks involved in that. Oh man, the the first time I ever had a sweat lodge, I had no idea what it was, and like, they all knew exactly what to do, and they made like a nice weepy out of some willow trees, and they had like this really heavy canvas they threw on top of it, and they, they we were like right on the ocean, like Pacific. Just, Pacific nice. Southern is like the southern tip, like that, the spot where we were, you could see the sun rise and set on the ocean in the same spot. Wow. There's not many places like that. But anyway, went through like three sessions, I think, and then there was one more after that, but everybody was being loud and like moaning, so I decided to just go off on my own. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I, I walked to the ocean. And I discovered bioluminescence for the first time. Incredible. And 
When right on the just, beach or out in the water? Right on the beach. Like, you would take the steps, and then your steps would light up. It was so cool. Amazing. And, yeah, it was it was amazing. Down there. So, you are one of the people who has basically brought the concept of sacred geometry to light for me. And it's funny that the two people who I've been able to talk at length to about sacred geometry are both architects or educated as architects. It's funny because I really lack a lot of understanding in mathematics and in geometry. So I have kind of just a fascination with sacred geometry. For someone like you and for someone like Silas, there's probably a different significance to sacred geometry. The fact that these naturally occurring shapes are perfect. Does that not really occur in the world of architecture? Can you make perfect shapes? Like a triangle? Is per- is that perfect? Anything man-made really... Is not. How about Coral Castle? Have you seen that? Yeah. How How... Incredible is that. But they disassembled that revolving door. Like the state of Florida disassembled that revolving door in order to inspect it, to deem it safe or unsafe for public, uh, you know, traffic. For, for them to make it a tourist attraction. They had to decide if it was safe or not. So they had a corps of engineers, operating engineers or civil engineers, what have you local guys that specialize in architectural stuff, disassemble it, and then reassemble it. And those guys said they could not get it to the same tolerances and to the same perfect uh, specs that it was at before. Yeah, they broke it. (laughs) It was like a 4,000 pound perfectly cut square slab of this coral from the ocean that you could revolve with your pinky finger. Incredible, right? I wish I knew how they built that stuff. Well, we say they, but it was only one guy, one Lithuanian guy. And no one ever saw him actually working. He had an electromagnetic generator on site. It's still there. The belief is that he was able to just reverse the gravitational pull, the magnetic polarity of these slabs and make them weightless and just like use a a slight or small pulley, what have you. To get them to the height that he wanted. Because you obviously can't reach with your arm with this thing. But he had a little pulley and would construct with these huge red coral slabs. But what's wild is how he got them out of the ocean. And how he got them cut to slabs like that and other shapes. That is wild. What's the most remarkable example of sacred geometry to you? Like the pine cone? Is that pretty small scale? There's this, there's the seashell, the spiral shell. Yeah. And then the pine cone is just like the pineapple. And the pineapple, yeah. The, the way the, the stem grows, too. The artichoke. The sunflower. It's all the numbers that are, keep doubling. The Fibonacci sequence? Yeah. Is like that... There's always, there, there's always one, two or three of those numbers. 
Like the sunflower has like 128, I think. Little seeds. There's there's controversy around snowflakes being sacred geometric shapes or not. Yeah, water. They make pretty incredible shapes, but they don't all adhere to a certain uh, shape, you know? Because they're all differently shaped. The water forms in weird ways. Yeah, ever since I heard about this one guy that was like freezing water and like checking out the the shapes of the the frozen water and he would like use human intention to change the shapes wow. of the way the water would freeze. Wow. That was I don't remember the guy's name, but I don't even think I read the book. I only like really seen some There's so much out there. You really have to you really have to commit yourself to uncovering worldly knowledge. You really have to become some kind of sage or hoarder of wisdom. Some kind of mystic to really delve into all the true knowledge of the world. The real stuff. It, it, takes, it takes a lot of commitment to really get into it. Just to read Gene Keys is probably... Such an undertaking. I'm going to go for the audiobook and I'll listen to it while working. I think I only read like half, a little bit more than half of that book. But he was using human intention while the ice was freezing or while it was already frozen? Just before. like During the freezing process? Yeah, and he, he did the same thing with rice. Like he took like three bowls of rice, made them fresh and was like, thank you, I love you to the one. And then like, I hate you to the other. And the, then the other one, he like just completely neglected. Oh. And that one was the worst. Yeah. The neglect like, was worse than the negativity? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. There's, there's, there's some incredible experiments with positivity and negativity. But that brings me to a couple other really powerful lessons that you've given me just when we get to meet up in the interim of your travels. You shared with me a scholarly article or lecture from this Hindu professor who was sharing with his students the research and facts around money becoming the sixth element. You remember that? Yeah. How incredible is that? That blew my mind and it changed my perspective. How... Did you feel about that when you came across it? Did you did you were you conflicted? I was like, wow. I I don't respect money, that's why. You know. That's how I felt too. I felt because I had an actual dislike for money that I had I had realized I was doing myself a disservice. So what we came across and you can add anything was that this professor was sharing research about experiments done with world currency testing their electromagnetic charge and then running the same experiments on the materials used to make the currency but were not actual currency and testing their electromagnetic charge. So what was found was these 
materials, the raw materials used to make currency had no electromagnetic charge, not positive or negative. But when testing the currency, be it the dollar, the peso, the euro, whatever, the shekel, the, uh, the old Israeli currency, I don't know if that's still their money, but it had a positive electronic charge. It had a positive charge, meaning it was in a sense alive, not like a living thing, but it had the current of energy that some live, not well, that all living things have. So the findings were that because of human intention, human energy, human effort, value, and thought going into currency, money around the world for all these years, the money has assumed a positive electronic charge and become an element in itself. That's really wild. But what it implies is that if you have a negative view towards money, meaning you hate money, or you don't, ha you don't value money, you don't respect money, you will actually repel money from you and from your immediate surroundings. If you respect money for what it is, realize that it is a reality of life, whether you choose to live an alternative lifestyle or not, and that money is used as a means to almost everything in the modern world, and your viewpoint reflects that, so it's positive, you can actually attract money into your life. And that's not to say it's something like that superstitious book, The Secret, about, um, what's the word? Attraction, the laws of attraction. But it does imply that a negative viewpoint towards money would repel it. It's not a get-rich-quick thing, but it gives you an idea of how you should view money. You wouldn't say that you have no respect for water or that you have a dislike or hatred for air because those are realities of life. It doesn't matter what your opinion of them is. They exist in the world. They are life essential. So that was really powerful. The other thing that uh, you shared with me was about cymatics. Oh, yeah. Remember that? I, I would love to hear your perspective on it overall and whether or not you've come across any new findings in that. Basically, the there's a video on YouTube. It's just this guy has a sound frequency generator and he like puts the speaker underneath this metal plate and then he pours sand on it and there's like I think 12 or there's a whole, there's different frequencies where it would make this beautiful sacred geometry sacred geometric shape the sand the sand would turn into the way the sound was shaped 
and in between notes it would go all blurry and then it would go to the next shape and it would be like anyway I feel like that is somehow connected with what we're talking about like the Fibonacci and everything like how the how the leaves are shaped and these forms in the world the reason for them because there's the thing called the shaman resonance and it's a sound that makes things grow so maybe that's connected I was I always thought that the 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 rev, the resonant frequencies of the planet correspond with the uh, chakra points of the human body there are seven resonant frequencies that earth itself emits and they correspond in some ways with the seven chakra points of the body which is pretty wild there are um, there are a few frequencies that we know like the ohm frequency I can't remember the amount of Hertz it has it might be like 103.1 no I think that's the news radio station I listen to but it's a frequency that emits you know peace and calm in the body sound energy basically is the bottom line the fact that sound energy has presence around the world it has significance and value to our bodies as well as our minds so that means the music you're listening to is affecting your mental state and mood not just in the way you think it is not just in the way you want it to it can affect your health it can affect your level of inflammation in your anatomy overall including your brain brain inflammation we know causes depression sound energy is weaponized by militaries especially the US military but it can also be used as a healing force there's an African uh, scientist or sound engineer who uses sound energy for medical purposes and can kill pathogens in the human body by emitting a specific frequency he's killed HIV somebody in Germany thought of a invention to boil water with sound wow it was is it instantaneous yep wow as soon as the sound comes out the water boils yeah it's like this like spherical thing that like emits the sound frequency and he puts it in the water and it just boils wow because it's the sound frequency of boiling water that is wild there was this some some point during world war two or world war one or something they they came up with the brown note and hmm. they made these giant speakers that would like emit this frequency that would make everybody have to go to the bathroom <laughs> wow and uh not make it you know to Wow. To make them, yeah. Uh, forgot what I was going to say. But. That's crazy. <laughs> the things that have already been done with sound, though, they allude to how much more could be done. How much positive uh, influence sound energy could actually have. And for the musicians out there, that's something to think about. How about doing some research 
about sounds you actually want to emit and figuring out how to emulate them through your instrument. I think with a computer, it's extremely easy, but I like the idea of doing it with proper instruments. When I was coming up with my lessons plans for teaching these kids music, it was really it was really cool because I discovered that each note had a color, like, and why I was like, why is there only seven notes or whatever? Mm -hmm. And there's only seven colors in the rainbow. It's like the same thing. It's wow. The seven chakras are all wow. different colors and the resonant frequencies of the planet. Wow. That is awesome. I think there's a lot to be said about the influence of sound on us as individuals. If people choose to not recognize it as a real force, they're probably being influenced by someone else, whether they realize it or not. Some industry guy, some music industry guy, or some advertising or marketing guy, some radio guy, someone is influencing you if you're not choosing to source your own influences or you're not paying attention to what it is that you want to be influenced by. Like, there's no doubt and there's tons of proof that listening to classical music is therapeutic for for babies even that have never listened to music before, but for for everyone. And it doesn't just mean therapeutic in the positive sense. It could be irritating, I'm sure, for the individual, depending on who it is and the dynamics of the music or the composer. It could elevate your heart rate. It could maybe raise stress levels or serotonin levels. Or it could influence profound thought or imagination or creativity. There's a lot to be learned about sound, about music, about creating those things. It's easy to say that we should research controversial things like conspiracy theories or, uh, you know, secret knowledge, secret teachings. But what, what might not be so simple but more beneficial is looking at the things in our everyday life that have become commonplace and have become routine and taking an objective look and saying, what does this do to me? Could this be altered so that it could do better things for me? Could this be made to benefit me or benefit my health or my family's health? That's, that's something to start looking at, I think. For me, definitely. I'm going to start researching what I can do with music and with sound for my health. Because I care about my health first and foremost in life. Health health comes first before, you know, my degree of entertainment or comfortability. I think 
people who get to live that traveling life have a different value of music, value music in a different way, see music in a different way than uh, the average nine to five person, you know? So many travelers carry an instrument. Yeah, I had this really awesome guitar that I did that bicycle trip with. The resonator? Yeah, it was a tricone resonator and it was like all chromed out body. Looked like a Decepticon. Mm -hmm. It was awesome. It was. That guitar was awesome. I actually ran it over with a car. Oh, in Mexico? No. Oh. Before I before I left, I ran it over and I had to rebuild the... Because the resonators got crushed, I rebuilt it and it sounded better. Oh my goodness. You made it sound better? Yep. Wow. Well, I got some new resonators and they were nicer than the ones that came with its stock. I don't know how you rebuilt it. It wasn't too hard. All you got, all I had to do was replace the, like aluminum cones. They were like seven inch, three seven inch cones. And then there was like they call it like some kind of spider bridge or something that like sets on top. And then the downward pressure of the strings is what holds it all together. That's it. Yep. Wow. And that guitar was sweet. It sounded amazing. That's probably why all those skater kids really. So I was just... They were drawn to you. I was just playing that and with the slide, you know. Open tunings. Is it just kind of a necessary accessory if you're going to travel the world that you have to carry an instrument? Are there people that just sing? There's times where you could be very bored without an instrument. And did did you unlock more musically in your traveling than you had... Before or after? Not really. No? No. Uh, it was just something to, to do. An Some, outlet. Something to help me get rides. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> uh, but I do want to point out one thing if you ever decide to start hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. That there is this thing that happens it's like it's I use the metaphor as like surfing in the ocean like if you get too far ahead of the wave it'll crash you if you don't get on the wave it'll you'll miss it and you have to wait for the next one mm -hmm. but there was this one ride I got one of the first rides and he dropped me off at this one spot and he was like, yo, you got to check out these hot springs. They're like right over there. And I was just like sort of in a rush for some reason and decided to start hitchhiking for like a couple hours and I wasn't getting a ride. I was like, oh, I'll just go over there. And it was like this amazing spot right on the side of the Grand River. It, they call it the Colorado River now, but it used to be called the Grand River. Mm. But it was, it was awesome. And I started hitchhiking again and got a ride and like, less than a minute because I guess I just wasn't ready to leave that place until I just experienced that what was the longest ride that you had gotten hitchhiking I know there was a couple real long mileage ones right long distance I think the longest one was from outside of Nashville to Allentown Wow, so all the way back here. 
And that was a, a truck driver picked me up. I was going to say, it had to be a trucker doing a long haul like that. Well, yeah, I just asked some random guy that I saw a truck that was getting ready to leave and he had New Jersey plates. So I was like, oh man, just ask. And that, that place where I was staying was cool because they had, there was like thousands of birds. In like, Nashville? Outside of the net, yeah. Mm. And, uh, all the locals were like, yeah, these birds come around once a year. And I, I got to experience it and sleep where they were all hanging out. That's awesome. What were they? Do you know? No. Were they big, small? A little small. They, but there was like... One so of those many. like... Were they one of those huge flocks that just like moves as like one... Yeah. Several. It was like clouds of birds. That's amazing, huh? The way they change direction. Like schools of fish. So cool. Was that... Were you talking for a lot of that ride with that guy? Was he silent? Was he on the phone with someone else? Yeah. It it's was, a weird thing. When you get picked up hitchhiking, you sort of gotta... Pick up on their gotta, vibes? You gotta be like... You gotta entertain them. You can't just... <laughs> can't just sit you silent. Can't, you can't they, just be quiet and They expect more than that? Well, that's usually why they pick you up is because they... They either have a story to tell or they want... A story told. Yeah. And... You I, definitely have a story to tell. I like the ones that have a story to tell. In particular. I know you prefer to listen. But you do have a lot to share with the world, right? Definitely. That's funny. And I think you have a way of getting people to share it all. Like, people want to share their story with you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm a good listener, so they usually tune into <laughs> that. <laughs> they they give you all they got. They usually give you the whole deal. You could have heard about that guy's whole life on that ride. So many different people. But the the people that pick you up that never picked up a hitchhiker before... It's usually the the most scary. <laughs> because they're scared too? I don't know what it is. Like, I remember one time I was in Mississippi. And this guy picked me up and... I was like, I never picked up a hitchhiker before. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's alright. It's gonna be alright. Before he dropped me off, he got all geeked out and... Drop me off in a weird spot. So where did you end up as a result of that? He got spooked, dropped you off. Oh, in the bad part of town where I had to walk through it. You had already agreed to a drop-off spot, and because he got spooked, well, he I, decided to go early? No, I, I knew he was going to drop me off somewhere, but he decided to drop me off in the worst spot. Like... <laughs> In the opposite corner of, like, whenever you get dropped off in a city, you have to walk through it to the end of it. And then, it's nice to get to experience the city firsthand, but, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes you're in a rush, and you shouldn't really be in a rush when you're hitchhiking either. Mm -hmm. I know you've said that walking is a little too slow to get through somewhere, and driving or motorcycling you're really not going to see much of a view. 
of a place, you know, you'll see a bit, but biking is kind of the right in between you think like if you were going to, if you were going to go for a scenic trip, like if you wanted to go on another long trip to go somewhere, road trip or whatever, would biking be the best way you think? Yeah. Bicycling, you could, you get to see the most and not miss, not miss that much. When you're going 55 miles an hour in a car, you don't really get to... Usually 70, 80 people are traveling on the highway. And on the bike, you're also propelling yourself. So you're like still pushing the journey, you know what I mean? Like you're still propelling yourself. Yeah, you have to really eat a lot instead of like buy gas. You have to eat like twice as much food. That's cool. (coughs) That is cool because... It is fuel, and you don't realize you actually need it until you're responsible for fueling yourself. <coughs> what did you find to be the best food while traveling? How many, how many months were you actually in a state of travel? Do you know? Like, it was off and on, but consecutive, what do you think? Like, year and a half? More? Yeah. About a year and a half? And what did you find to be, like, some of the best foods to survive on? The best food, by far, is this one... There was this one mountain pass I came up to in Oregon. And I, was, I played my guitar for these, these fishermen that were, like, catching salmon. And... The dude just gave me a, like a giant oh. salmon. <laughs> like, I had to, I was by myself at the time and I had to cook it by myself. And I like cooked it overnight. I remember I stayed at this campground that was like, he was like, yeah, go to that campground over there. Go cook that fish. The hottest shower you'll ever have for free. Just do it. Nice. He's like, go get away with it, you know. He, he was awesome. Yeah, his name was Fish Boy. Ha! <laughs> he was awesome. That guy sounds awesome. But yeah, it was delicious. I like... There was no firewood anywhere. It was like all soggy lichen wood. And I like had to borrow some wood from some of the other campers. To... So you think that was some of the best fuel that you've had on your trip? Yeah. I'd, that salmon? I had, I was eating it for like a week and then eventually like my my friends found me. And I gave them a bunch of it, and they were like, oh, thank you. And I, it, was, it was just about ready to go at that point. Yeah. But I, like, smoked it overnight. Oh, you did this, smoke on this, it? Like, on this, like, ring. That was smart. And then there was, like, raccoons lurking and stuff. Trying you had to, to fight like, them off? Like, yeah. stay the hell away from my fish? Yep. <laughs> Don't even think about it? That's funny. That was, that was the best. And Mexico had the best food, too. And cheap, you said. Yeah, that's when, awesome. When you go to a restaurant in Mexico, there's not a menu. You can't just get whatever you want. <coughs> you have to ask what they have, or they tell you what they have. They just give you food, and it's fresh. And in America, they kind of have to keep stuff in the fridge, mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff goes bad, mm-hmm. and you don't Kept really too know long. what to order. Yep. And you can it's hit or miss. You know, mm-hmm. you can like just get something that's sort of. So week, so. You can get a week old thing. Oh yeah, people pre- easy and. Cheap restaurants will, like, do certain things to make bad food edible or acceptable. 
That's a shame. But in Mexico, they don't do that. They just give you nice whatever's fresh, and it's this one time I, I was hit walking, and this this like Mexican dude, he was like roasting a pig, like gave me some fresh pork. Had to be I, awesome. It was. It was. That's one of the best foods in the world, to be honest. It's like such a guilty pleasure. And definitely, uh, when I was in South Mexico, I harvested some coconuts and ate some coconut sprouts. That had to be good. Now, what what part of it was that? Like a small or young, like even younger than a young coconut? Or what is the sprout? What Like the shoot that's going to become a coconut? Yeah, like the, the coconut is hanging out on the ground and it has a shoot coming out of it like four feet long. Really? And you bust that open and inside there's like... All the, all the juice turns into like this jelly. It's it has like a styrofoam consistency, and it's shaped like a walnut. It looks like a walnut shape, and it's just this big, delicious. It's it's the best stage of the coconut to eat. There's four stages. Mm, the green. Yeah, when it's fresh out, you only get it off the tree, and it's. That's the best coconut water. Mm -hmm. And then it falls and then there's like some, there's like stage two where it's kind of like you have to cut it open and there's like this soft little bit of jelly meat in there. Oh. Yeah. Like jelly and mostly juice. Mm -hmm. And then there's, then it turns brown and it has like the, 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 the water inside and the inside is and solid then, and then there's like more meat mm -hmm. and then when it's at the sprouting stage it has the meat but the water is all turned into like this styrofoam oh really see like wow thing that makes the sprout and you said that one was the best you think yeah it offered the most to you nutritionally it was delicious yeah and i, I must have had like four or five of them but there was this one time I found a coconut and it was like on the ground, like ready to sort of decompose. Mm -hmm. And I opened it up and it was so sweet, you know, and delicious. And the ones that are sprouted are way harder to open and like process before you could eat because they want to grow into a tree. Yeah, yeah. But like the, that one was like not going to sprout. Yeah. Didn't really have a shot. And it, ju it just wanted to be eaten. And it tasted so sweet because it's just... Wow. Just, like, just eat me. Yeah. What was your coconut opening method? Did you generally use the same method? Was there a struggle at first? Getting the husk off. I, I learned how to do it a certain way from... Observation? Some, there was this guy, Les Stroud. Yeah, some, yeah. Some I know him. Man. He's amazing. And Observation's the best teacher, huh? All you do is you just put a stick in the ground and you put your weight on top of it and take the husk off that way you can just okay. do it with one stick and all those all those kids from Argentina I taught them all how to do that nice they were like they were like you're genius <laughs> <laughs> and once you get it off you gotta like slap it with a machete a couple times right on the crack cause there's like three there's different seams on it yeah you gotta hit the seam cool Shout out to Les Stroud. That guy's pretty amazing. So, you noticed Appa. You noticed Appa in the room. 
for the listeners who don't know, it's a fictional bison type character from cartoon, I guess meant for kids, but with worldly and adult lessons in it called Avatar The Last Airbender. If you haven't seen that show, it's really amazing. Justin and I, by the time the show came out, I'm sure you weren't really watching Nickelodeon anymore. I was on to bigger and better things like learning how to play music, skateboarding, getting into trouble, stuff like that, trying to be cool by age 10 or 11, but what an awesome cartoon that I came across later in life while I was on a deployment with the Navy. I was out on a ship in the middle of the ocean with pretty much a desperate urge for any kind of entertainment. Someone shared the show with me through uh, an external hard drive. And I became completely hooked because, you know, I love anime-type shows and liked cartoons since the time I was a kid, but martial arts are awesome. And it's the theme that draws me, and I'm sure drew you because you don't strike me as a television watcher, as a cartoon watcher. Yeah, the first time I ever watched it, my friend John Kraft showed me the... Mutual friend. He's amazing. Yeah. Uh, we watched it. I went to his house in New York. We just watched it. One episode after another for a couple of days. and Love that show. Awesome. The, um, <clears throat> the themes I'm talking about are... Worldly in the sense that... Children don't really understand... Like the elements... Of the world, like we were talking about. The sixth element, money is not in the show really, but like earth, wind, water, fire. The um, the principles applied when this, this kid wakes up from like cryo sleep essentially and has to, you know, learn about the world. The world is different. There's greed in the world. There's, you know turmoil, violence, war in the world. Those are timeless kind of things that people will have to deal with. And I don't think necessarily it's just for kids. I'm not really a cartoon watcher, but that was powerful. It was amazing, actually. The movie was really not so much. No, they made a, they made a movie. I don't know why they made it. But it was terrible. (laughs) Well, I hope to see some influential new media come down in the future. We have pretty mutual taste in music, in media in general. We saw that movie Chimatica together, which was amazing. Um... Samsara, which there are two movies called Samsara that are incredible. Right? Right. The one about the monks, that was incredible. Thank you for sharing that with me. But then the other one that I showed you, the DVD, that's just like an artistic interpretation of humanity in all its like glory and the 
bizarre sometimes and taboo sometimes marvels of our species because we're so diverse. There's so many different kinds of human beings. And if you were to travel the entire world within a year, I mean, you would need a lot more than a year to really see culture all around the world. You'd only get like a snapshot if you spent such a small amount of time in each place over the course of a year. But the culture on a global level is astounding. Everyone arriving at these core principles in different ways, people's different values, people's different forms of art, people's different forms of music. We, you've seen a lot in the world, but we, in our perspectives, still have only seen such a small fraction of the world, you know? And here, the world has pretty much been totally shown to all of us now. Through the information age, you can type in something to see anything anywhere at any time in the world. But still, we have such a limited view and compartmentalized view. <clears throat> you could never, you could never see real culture on a global level the way you can see it in some of these condensed like artistic works like that. That movie Samsara, that was really incredible. The meat factory segment and like the, the just the manufacturing and production facility segment, all the music in that. The uh, guy that seems like an MS-13 type uh, Latino maybe gang type dude completely covered in tattoos but like crouched over holding like his baby just like playing with her with his finger like there's such indescribable intangible beauty to our species you must see it differently now as a family man too that's got to that's got to be that's got to be a uh a mind shift for you. The beauty of your own life. It's beautiful to see you with a family, man. It's awesome. Yeah, I got to... I got to be my... I got to be Caitlin's midwife. And I was able to... experience the birth firsthand. And I was, I was hardly ready, you know, my, my first child, daughter, just came out into my arms. And she was ready for you. You might not have been ready, but she was ready, right? It was pretty extraordinary. Though. Yeah. Just the way, the way the umbilical cord looks like a DNA strand. Wow. And how like we were outside where it was perfectly quiet, you know. Not in some kind of facility. Yeah, that we when we went there we, we drove right by the hospital and didn't go there. Wow. That's cool. And 
Yeah, and the, the placenta. I didn't even really know what that was. You know? <sighs> I, I, did, I did all the reading I could before the birth. And sort of read about it, but like when it actually came out, it was like, whoa. It's like... Life. It's this thing that... Like a processing... I don't even... I can't even explain it. And it's extremely valuable. Like, for research and for stem cell harvesting, that stuff is super valuable. There, there must be a reason for that. You know what I mean? Like, anything that is a commodity in the world, anything that's valued in the world, there's a reason for it. The amount that can be done, the amount of things that can be done using placental stem cells, it's outrageous. People can take an injection of placental stem cells and rebuild new cartilage, new tissue, new nerves in their body. That's wild. Wow. That stuff is life. And it's life that can be used on other life to enhance it or heal it or change it to help it. Yeah, with our first daughter, we... We waited like two or three days and we made the mistake of clipping it, clipping it off and I forget what we did. We, I think we like, we threw it in the river and, mm. but with our son, we left it on until, we left it on for like four or five days until he kicked his cord off and the cord it's just like a little tree, like the way a branch. It looks like it's like a branch, like when you break it up. Mm-hmm. It's just like a branch, and the guy, the doctor at the hospital, was like, "Yeah, we'll just wait for it to quit pulsating, and then we'll, we'll clip it." You know. Wow. But, but like, we we learned about the placenta a little bit better after our first child came out. Uh, and it's called the full lotus birth you uh you leave the placenta on until you don't have to cut it off and it just pops off and you you salt the placenta so it doesn't rot wow and you, you change the rag every day and the placenta has this smell when we did it it has a certain smell that is just like unexplainable and yeah, having the placenta attached while the mother is hanging out it helps her relax. And the smell, you could, it's almost like you could eat the smell for some reason. Really? Yeah. Like of the placenta. It wasn't like a gross smell? No, it was... Calming. Yeah. Very weird. And that was in accordance with a full lotus birth. Yeah, we we figured out that what the natives did, the they would bury it under a tree. And we like had a certain tree where we went and had the birth. It you was, did that only for pinion? Yeah. Yeah, cuz we didn't really we didn't, didn't really, know it at, yeah. for the first child. Where did you learn about that? Um we learned about it in Oregon. 
uh, there was these like there was like this grandma midwife lady that was like talking about it. They're called doulas too, right? Doulas are the ones that don't really do anything other than just kind of hang out. Like, They're just there as backup. Spiritually. Oh, okay. Okay. Like back them up. Midwife does the work. Because like a lot of what happens in the birth is what's going on in the mother's mind. Mm. Like anything that would. Yeah, it's usually tied with the way they're feeling about the birth. If they're scared or what exactly they're scared about might just actually happen, you know. Kind of like a psychedelic experience. That's wild. Yeah, it's uh. Any apprehension could bring those exact things into existence? Yep. Uh, we went to the hospital with our first child. And she... They really, they really scare you. Like, every, every... They give you, like, a little pamphlet. It's even, that's even scary. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, 90% of the birthing books that I've seen are, like... There's all sorts of section drawings of, like, stuff that... You don't really the the one book I got was called Artemis Speaks and it was definitely a good book. And Artemis the the, the Greek goddess? Is that what it's based on? Or I'm the not title? Sure. I'm not sure. But it was like an interview and the book was geared towards mothers that had C section before and wanted to have a real birth after that. So the risk was higher, you know, and whatever, but, and, like, at the hospital, they really try to, they, they want to cut it out, because they make money, mm-hmm. and, for every little procedural step that they take, that's an extra, yeah, added thing to the bill, there's like a, yeah, they, uh, there's a feeling they get to when they, 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 take it out instead of the mother doing it herself Mm -hmm. and they really try to find every little way to try and do that vaccinations are scary too in the um in the podcast the most recent dr Rhonda patrick podcast with joe rogan that i listened to they talked about how there is a series of shots a lot of shots vaccinations that your child is supposed to get all at once uh, at a certain um, milestone after being born, and the the body's response to each vaccination is unique, I guess, or needs to be individual. The response to each inoculation should be individual. But if you're hitting the body with all these at once, there's a wild immuno response because it's responding to these multiple fronts of invasion into the immune system and into the body, you know, into the bloodstream. That's scary. Yeah, there was a, Caitlin was doing a forum and she figured out this one where a mom had like multiple children and vaccinated ones and not the others and noticeable differences in like their immunity and their they would get sick easier. What about cognitive function? Like any any mental differences? I feel like my one friend's child had gotten autism from vaccinations. The vaccinations. Like, That's a strong 
belief and throughout the yeah. country right now. Well, a lot of people believe that. I, I could see. There, there is evidence to specific vaccinations being linked to autism, and it's weird how autism didn't really exist when we were younger. Maybe it existed, but not on a person-to-person level that we knew about. Like, not everybody knew someone that was autistic. Very weird. It has to do with the the way they're birthed. And like we said, those epigenetics. They play they play a part because you're healthy. Kate's healthy. If either of you weren't, it would add a list of potential complications to your children's health that are just not even present at all now because those genes were not activated by your lack of health or Kate's lack of health. So you're very lucky in that respect. Not luck. It's not magic, but you're blessed in that respect. It's a very good thing. Your kids are both wonderfully healthy and very aware, dialed in, observant. Yeah, my youngest is... uh. Gonna turn two in March. Pinion Ray. No, 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 no. Gonna. That's that's Mary Moonflower. He's yeah. Pinion Ray's your youngest. Yeah, and she's basically potty trained. Like only gonna be two in March. Yeah, she's gonna. Yeah, there's a lot of things that happen. Like sometimes she wants attention and she goes on the floor, and sometimes. Yeah, it's she's there's a lot of variables that I didn't even couldn't even imagine. Yeah, there's things going on in her mind, that's what it is. She's she's making a choice to do that. She's potty trained. Yeah, that's is. that's the the benchmark. It's not, you know, the accidents that are her regular choice. That's amazing. And she does her own thing. She's strong willed. Not even two years old yet cruising around living her own life basically the limit is us teaching her things like if absolutely that's what people need to learn people need to understand that that is your children's only potential setback what you're willing to help them learn what you're willing to show them she's a cool little lady she is She's very cool. And they're they're both both your kids are noticeably quiet. And I think that's that says something because if you're speaking, you're not listening. So even if you're a baby, if you're making noise, you're not listening. You're not observing. So the absence of noise making from them and what I see from them seems like they're very aware and very observant. She's listening while I'm talking to her and she answers in her own way. 
kind of a bare minimum. She doesn't really want to waste too much time with giving her response. She wants to just go on with her life, it seems like. Yeah, she... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that is so crazy. It's funny, too, because as they learn things and they, you realize that you do all of those things. <laughs> yeah, so physical aptitude is going to be interesting for her because as a kid, I don't know many people who did the degree of cool stuff that you did, like dirt biking, skiing, not just doing those things, but doing them like to the maximum, like riding wheelies up hills fast, as fast as you could, skiing backwards as fast as you could, flying over jumps backwards. That was you, so imagine what kind of aptitude she's going to have. And Pinion. Neither of them are Leos though, huh? They were actually born on the exact opposite times of the year. Those two. The two of them are the exact exact opposite times of year. Yep. Either of them Leos. Nah. They're gonna throw you a curveball. They're gonna be. They're both gonna be. Wild cards for you. I think. Think there's gonna be some. Some differences in your traits. Yeah, something about astrologies. I feel like they knew a lot about it in the library. In the past. The Library of Alexandria. Absolutely. Like, that was the height of world knowledge. That was right before the Dark Ages. And astrology used to be called astropsychology. It used to be a respected science. It's been reduced since then to, like I said, more of just a superstition. Astrology we think of now as just like a joke that's in the newspaper or the tabloids that like, you know, people will wear a pendant and talk about what traits they're, what other signs they're compatible with. They don't think of it as something that's actually determining their psyche in any way, influencing their psyche in any way. It used to be called astropsychology. That says it all right there. There was cosmic influence in your psyche, in your psychological state, and then there was genetic influence, and then there was, you know, immediate surroundings influencing your psyche. Everything in influences your psychological state and your mental state, right? We see it that way. Everything you observe and everything you deal with affects you but we don't see the cosmic realm as a real influence to our state of being anymore because that's superstitious now that's taboo that's weird kind of a shame those that was thousands of years ago that it was a respected science I feel like we're coming back into it now now ever since 2012 the the sun has been getting closer to Sirius and when sun was closest to Sirius is when they were building the pyramids and stuff so hopefully something 
there is there has been a shift. There has been a shift of the collect, collective conscience. Collective conscious. But I think the process isn't over yet. No. The, there's a great book that I read called The Celestine Prophecy. It's about this guy that goes to Peru and like talks about how people have this urge to like want to do something different and then talks about how people are going to start realizing history and how it affects us today and then it starts I mean this book is in the fiction section but it's funny because those are all things that are happening in a way yeah Something about that book is very relevant. Like, yeah, I don't believe something has to be nonfiction in order to share real lessons. I don't think it has to be a true story in order to give true lessons. But yeah, all through the book, they're like this manuscript, this manuscript, and the the cops are really trying to. Because it doesn't agree with what the church is thinking. And the church thinks it's like not making sense. And then towards the end, he's trying, like, these group of people are trying to convince the church to reconsider letting this out to the public and stuff. And then at the end, they're at like the Celestine ruins in Peru. And. The cops come, and the the one of the one of the guys in the book uh, transcends. Basically, he like turns really light, and like the cops can't see him, but they could see the other people that are like getting scared. And you really just have to read it, but I absolutely will. The Celestine Prophecy. Yeah, it's a nice, easy read too. The way it's written and. It's, it's pretty exciting. Uh, I love A Brave New World. I love 1984. I love the idea of people pushing beyond societal limits for the truth. I think that's a necessary thing in the world. And I think even if it's shared in fiction, it still has value. This one party is getting chased by... By cops. Of course. And, always the police. And he gets chased all the way up to the top of this this mountain. And he, he has like a... He has like a sense of enlightenment up there. And it's pretty cool. The way he explains it, sort of. That is one that I'll be checking out. Justin, I thank you for sharing some of your perspective. And I always appreciate it. Every time we talk, I learn something from you. I hope the listeners appreciated it as well. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is the last Mohican podcast.